Welcome to Day 6 Ranch Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Swick. On this show, we share testimonies from all aspects of the equine industry that will inspire you to pursue your purpose, optimize your potential, and prevail in peace. If you want to get more out of life and build your legacy-worthy lifestyle, we encourage you to visit day6ranch.com to stay connected. everybody to another week here at day six ranch podcast in this week's episode we feature an incredible member of the warrior community jason goyenko jason is relatively new to the western way of life but has already experienced the profound positive effect that horses can have on our warrior community in life after service jason's an incredibly decorated endurance sport athlete who lived a service career that epitomizes perseverance in this episode he shares the story of an impactful mission he ran on deployment while serving in the u.s navy on special recon team one As for many of us, transitioning out of the professional warrior space posed its challenges for Jason. And in this episode, he shares the breakthroughs and successes that he found while walking that journey. Jason continues to serve the veteran population through his Swim for Soft event in support of the Honor Foundation. Now it has been an exciting week here at Day 6 Ranch. Late last week, we finished a cross-fencing project, and with the completion of a new pasture, the next natural progression would be to fill it with horses. In our continued efforts to help the warrior and western worlds pursue purpose, optimize potential, and prevail in peace, we thought it rather fitting to fill that pasture with rescues. A huge thank you is deserved to Kate Luca and the Lucky Break Rescue Team for supporting the recent acquisition of a broodmare and our six-month-old filly. The pair have been here a few days now and are acclimating well. We've already began to address some of their health needs and we'll be preparing them for the weaning process in the next couple weeks. This weekend, we'll be attending the Road to Victory Gala, hosted by the Victory Therapy Center in support of their incredible equine program, Horses for Heroes. Next week, we make a quick trip out to Lexington, Kentucky for the 140th Annual National Horse Show at Alltech Arena in the Kentucky Horse Park. Again, we thank you all for your continued support of Day 6 Ranch Podcast. And if you're looking to grow in the areas of leadership, self-mastery, and discipleship, we encourage you to visit day6ranch.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter to stay connected. We hate to keep y'all waiting any longer. Here is our conversation with Jason Guayanco. Well, Jason, welcome to Day 6 Ranch Podcast. We couldn't be more excited to sit down and talk life with you. I think there's so many incredible lessons from your time in the military and your time in endurance sports that we can learn from. And you've accomplished quite a bit in the endurance world. I know you're just coming off of some work in Arizona there and, and the Leadville 100. How are you recovering? How are you feeling? You're getting ready for a new event. What's going on? I am not getting ready for a new event. My body is <laughs> I'm taking a few months off of running. My feet are beat up. Um, but it, it's it's the normal ebb and flow of being an athlete, right? Yeah. You for an event that uh, requires your all, and you, you got to have an off season. So yeah. I'm getting back to foundational stuff and – strength training and functional strength and rebuilding the foundation from the ground up so that uh whatever that next event may be i haven't have not quite decided what that is or or a timeline for anything uh that that i'll be ready to to do the work and go through the journey again yeah i'll tell you what as as a young athlete for me there's so much emphasis focused on building your body in the form of training but once i started to get into the endurance sports i mean that recovery component is a huge component of your training and and being able to truly affect the trajectory of of your training load yeah i absolutely agree and leadville really highlighted that for me because you know you can you can put in all the miles and all the work but if you're not eating right if you're not trying to get sleep if you're not optimizing all the things that help you recover and absorb all the all the training that you're putting in might as well be going backwards wow that's crazy let's talk about leadville a little bit it's kind of a unique experience uh let's talk about kind of the history of event what the event entails and and your experiences so the leadville 100 ultra marathon started back in the 80s the leadville is a small town in colorado just south of frisco and back in the 80s it was a huge mining town population of about 5,000 people, 3,500 of those people worked at the mine. And one day they were all called into a meeting 
uh, as the race director and founder calls it, you know, miners don't have meetings. They told them the mine was going to shut down and to tell everybody to go home. And that was it. One day, Leadville became the most unemployed city in America. Wow. And that's unreal. Absolutely. And in the 80s, the government's not handing out checks to, to help you out. So they had to figure out how they were going to survive and keep the economy going. So I think it was the, the governor of Colorado at the time had had suggested that you need to figure out how to get people to, to come to Leadville and how to get them to stay. And so they had been tossing ideas around about putting a fair or rodeo or have a 5K or 10K. But then they had heard about this race called Western States that goes on in Northern California in the Tahoe area. And it's a 100-mile ultramarathon. Has also has an interesting history. And the governor said that you got to get people to stay overnight. You need to figure out how to get them to stay overnight. And they said, well, if you're running 100 miles, you're going to stay overnight. Yeah, heck yeah, you are. You better. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, fast forward to 2023 and the Lifetime Foundation has has purchased the rights to that race. And now they have a, a mountain bike race to go along with it, an entire race series throughout the year that builds up for it. Um, they've created foundation and charities that give back to the town. And it has literally saved the town of Leadville. So I found that story just so fascinating. They say that you don't find Leadville and it, it, Leadville finds you. Yeah. And about this time last year, I was really stuck in a rut. It had been three years since I separated from the military and it had been a pedal to the metal ride leaving no stone left unturned, throwing spaghetti against the wall, just in an effort to to find my, my path and my next chapter in life to something I'm passionate about. Late one evening, I just found myself sitting on my couch watching YouTube documentaries and found one on the Leadville 100 Ultramarathon. And it reminded me of a book that I'd read years ago called Born to Run about the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico who lived this very simple, hard, but happy lives. We're running, climbing mountains. It serves not only as a meat transportation, but for play and community engagement. In fact, they're a blue zone. They're one of the, the zones all around the world that has no instances of, of heart disease, of, of cancer, any of these diseases that, that modern society typically has. And they live a long time. That's interesting. Yeah, so... Watching this documentary, I suddenly felt a spark and it lit a fire inside me that hadn't been lit in a long time. Like I said, you, you don't find Leadville and Leadville finds you. And I think it's in the, the legacy of all the runners, all the different runners that go to Leadville to do this race. I think that the history of the race and, and the town, it, it lives on in that through those runners and that legacy. It's just incredible if you think about what it takes to compete in some of these endurance sports. Based on elevation alone, Leadville is not an advantageous place to be, be knocking out a 100-miler. Yes. <laughs> Leadville is dubbed the race across the sky because it starts at 10,152 feet, and although it, it dips briefly for a few miles to 9,600 feet, it'll go to 12,180 feet with a total vert of over 15,000. That is incredible. So being from San Diego, how the heck do you train for elevation like that? You know, it, it's hard. Ideally, you'd want to come out here a month or two or go out to Leadville, be in elevation a month or two to get to get acclimated. acclimated. We're fortunate here in San Diego that we do have a lot of mountainous terrain. It's mm -hmm. just not an elevation. Mm -hmm. But I was able to go to the Leadville training camp in, in June and spend three days in Leadville running uh, over 60 miles and that was that was great to be able to preview most of the course and really understand what i was dealing with yeah so i devised a plan from there to get out to the mountains of colorado in elevation two weeks prior to the race it just so happened that the way it worked out on on friends that i know out there and places to stay 
that I actually did a really nice step in altitude, uh, which is the way you want to do it. You know, it, instead of landing at Denver Airport, which is at 5,000 something feet, and then going straight to 10,000 feet in Leadville, mm-hmm. that's a pretty tough act. Yeah. Act of it. yeah. So instead, I, I drove from San Diego, and my first stop was in Edwards, just outside of Vail, which is sits below, right below 8,000. Spent a little time in the Edwards Vale area, moved to Breckenridge, which is about 9,000 for a few days. And then the week before the race, ended up going to Leadville. So that acclimatization process really worked out well for me. Yeah, what an incredible accomplishment. And uh, for you to stack, I mean, multiple Ironmans, Leadville, all that you've accomplished is pretty, pretty incredible feat. And I know you're a glutton for punishment. We're going to talk about your military career here in a little bit. But what I found most interesting when we first got to meet was the path in which you took throughout your military career. Fair to say that it did not go as planned in the slightest, which is the experience for most in the warrior businesses. But how you handled the adversities and how you handled the challenges and how you were persistent, I think speaks volumes to who you are as a person. And then... I really want to spend some time talking about your transition out of the military world and into civilian life because going from a professional warrior to a quote-unquote civilian is always a difficult task, but you did it kind of right in the thick of COVID-19. So isolation is kind of a natural feeling when going through that process, and yours obviously was exacerbated given the climate of the world at the time. But let's talk about kind of the the first spark that that set your sights on the military, and I think if, if we could spend some time developing, you know, the morning of 9-11 and what you were up to and, and how that unfolded for you. The morning of 9-11, I was on my buildup for Ironman Hawaii that October. So I had ridden my bike from Vienna, Virginia towards right along the Potomac and was on my way back to the gym that I personal trained at. Unbeknownst to me, that morning during the ride, as I rode past the Pentagon, past DC, that the first of the Twin Towers would be struck. And when I got back to the gym, there was nobody working out. Everybody was standing around watching the TVs. And I just saw this building on fire. I had no idea what happened until everybody started telling me what they had seen. And at that point, nobody still was sure what was going on. And that was... You know, up until that point, I'd been very focused on myself and, you know, you could say selfish pursuits of doing Ironmans and doing my thing, just kind of living my early 20s, going on surf trips. Um, that was that was the moment that was a catalyst for this bigger idea of selflessness and in doing something to serve others yeah yeah so some years had passed after 9-11 and it's my understanding that uh, medal of honor ceremony is kind of what drove you to start actively pursuing your military career let's talk about that experience and kind of how it moved you i uh during i spent my college summers lifeguarding at the beaches in ocean city maryland and it was such a, a great time in my life, one of the best jobs I've, I've ever had and uh, still have a lot of friends from that era in my life. But a lot of the, the people that I lifeguarded with ended up going into the military special operations path because, one, they didn't want to sit behind a desk, and, two, they wanted to figure out another opportunity where people could pay them to work out yeah. and play. <laughs> And they were, so I had friends that were like, I'm going to become a SEAL or I'm going to go be a Green Beret or there's this PJ thing that sounds really cool. Yeah. So, and it just so happens, you know, those, those friends made it through successfully. We always stayed in touch and followed each other's careers and got back together when they were in town. So one October day, one of my friends who was on one of the SEAL teams on the East coast of Virginia beach called me up and said he was coming into town the next day and asked what I was up to. 
it was a Wednesday, so I was just like, just work and a normal day. And he told me that he was coming in town for Medal of Honor ceremony, a posthumous Medal of Honor ceremony for Lieutenant Michael Murphy. And there were several ceremonies that day, but he wanted me to come out to the one at the Navy Memorial, which was the final one in the evening. So I showed up there and sat next to him outside of the Navy Memorial. Uh, next to him was Heather Murphy, Michael Murphy's widow. All of these Navy SEALs in dress blues with tridents on their chest. I listened to Marcus Luttrell speak. I listened to Dan and Maureen Murphy talk about their son. I shook hands with Dan Murphy and his mother Maureen gave me a hug when I thanked her for her son's selfless sacrifice and service to our country. And from that moment, I could not look myself in the mirror again. And I think any man worth his weight in salt who had the opportunity that I did would have felt the same way. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it just so happened that the friend that I went with that day, uh, his next set of orders was to buzz to become an instructor. So I reached out to him soon after that. And I was 28, I think, at the time. So I would, at the point where I was going to begin to need an age waiver. And, you know, I started asking him questions about that. And he said, no problem. We'll, we'll get it signed. Yeah, heck yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll get you in. <laughs> there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, absolutely. It helps knowing that right people in right places. Yeah. So pretty soon after that, I found myself, uh, I think it was the, the following year, found myself in boot camp and pretty soon after that in, in buds and buds was, uh, you know, it, like, like you said in your introduction, it, it didn't go the way that I had planned. I, uh, I didn't make it through the first day of hell week, but I have zero regrets. I, Talk to, I've talked to so many guys that have said, oh, yeah, I, I wanted to try. I wanted to be a SEAL, but this and this happened. And I just hear a lot of excuses. Mm-hmm. At least I I signed up and I gave it my all. I tried yeah. my best to, to make it happen. So I can, I can live with that. And even with knowing the outcome and, and dealing with failure, I I grew so much as a person because of that that I would go back and 100% do it all again if I still if I knew the outcome. Really? So let's talk about some of that growth because setting your sights on such a lofty goal and pursuing it and being so close and then being rerouted in your career. I mean, that's got to be extremely disorienting and you know, you described it as a huge lesson in humility. But what was some of that personal growth that took place? Because that's what I found most interesting about your story is most people would waller in in the quote unquote failures of not making it. But yet you took that opportunity to learn and you took that opportunity to better yourself and you took that opportunity to grow, which as this story and your testimony unfolds, we're going to learn, paid huge dividends in your ability to serve this country. Absolutely. It was a tremendous blow to the ego and a huge lesson in humility that looking back at the time, I needed it. But coming into it, you know, I, as a candidate to go to Buds, I couldn't have had a better, better resume. Four-time Ironman triathlete with a 10-hour, 40-minute PR, beach lifeguard, personal trainer. All my friends had already thought that they would see me in the teams at some point. Yeah. And that was probably the, the hardest thing to, to deal with is to tell all your friends and your family that you failed. Yeah, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. And, um, you know, what happens to you after buds is the Navy is not in the business of granting, helping you live your dreams and making dreams come true. They're a business. 
Yeah, so they have, they've got to figure what, out what to do. And you need to become a sailor now. And you become needs of the Navy. So immediately after not making it through BUDS, they you get sent off of the BUDS compound in Coronado, and they send you a different place in Coronado uh, to North Island Naval Base. It's not a great place to be. You're, you're with the, the rest of the BUDS campus. You didn't make it. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of anger, anxiety. You got a lot of people drinking. There's a lot of uncertainty. And fortunately, they, they have a program now to help these candidates who don't make it through BUDS cope with what's going on. Because these are all, most of them are really good dudes. Looking back on some of the friends that I have that, that didn't make it through, I have a friend who became a PJ. I have another friend who became a Green Beret. I have other friends that became EOD, you know, got out, got medical degrees. These are awesome, honorable people that in normal circumstances, like you, you would, it wouldn't even be a thing, yeah. but yeah. I'm, everybody wants to take a shot at you. Everybody in the, the regular Navy just finds names to make fun of you. All they, all they see is that you failed and they don't see the potential in you and that and that's hard to deal with because you're already dealing with this identity crisis of just failing everything that you've put into one basket you bring up some good points and i think back in my journey i was blessed to have a pretty successful athletic career uh, that transitioned in the fire business and law enforcement when i started to do that stuff and and this isn't to say that i'm extra talented or I'm better than anybody else, but I had a lot of success. And then when life happens and you experience that first catastrophic or perceived catastrophic failure, uh, it's tough to deal with. And I know for me, the first time I talked to a psych when I was well on my way to a valley was, they said this, it's a big deal because you're right in the middle of it. You're right in the middle of the experience of failure. But the only challenge that you had is that you've never had to deal with failure. So you don't know how to overcome it. Everything that you've done in life, I can't say everything, that's absolute. Most things that you've done in life, you've seen success and you've been relatively competitive and you've performed at a high level. And when you're around a bunch of people that perform at that same level and have that same standard, and then you become disconnected through a perceived failure, in this case, right, falling out of buds. For me, it was just the throes of my career. I mean, a lot of life was thrown at me real quick and I did not know how to deal with it. It's a change in, in the perspective of failure because I can say for me, and I don't know if this rings true for you, but for me, pre-experience, failure was an inadequacy. It was a lack of ability. It was a lack of intelligence. It was something that something that I did not have to a certain standard was causing the failure. And I was literally motivated by the fear of failing. It was the driving force for me to be as good as I was at sports and then in the law enforcement realm. Now, post-experience, yeah, I still don't like to fail. I don't take it well at all. But I see failure as a learning opportunity. It's a chance to grow. It's a chance to get better. It's an opportunity to see the holes that are in your game and have an ability to plug them up to transform into a better version of you. And I think that's my attraction to endurance sports is that fundamentally, it's just that. You go out and you push your body to the absolute limits to see if there's a more efficient way to train, better nutrition, better sleep recovery. You know, you're out there seeking failure in essence to build a better version of you. So it's the perception of failure and it's the way in which we view it has a profound effect on how it affects us and our mental health and our mental well-being. Jocko Willink talks about it in his motivational speech, The Good, right? Mm -hmm. About you failed, good. Good. But I wanted, to, I wanted to go back to a point that you made about your athletic history because it's a really, it's a really pertinent subject when it comes to buds. And it's something that I want to talk about because everybody that goes there it, they're the local hero from whatever town they came from. They yeah. were the they were the all state wrestler, the, the all state cross country runner or, or football player. You know, everybody's the, the local hero. And you you get guys at Buds who look like they could fight in the UFC 
or play linebacker in the NFL. And those guys are the first ones, the first surf torture that hits. They get cold and they're running for the bell. Yeah. And then you've got a guy who's 160 pounds soaking wet and he's got the heart of a champion. He's the one keeping his neck tall underneath the boat mm-hmm. and his arms aren't shirking from being extended carrying a log. It's one of the things that, that I really appreciated about the opportunity of going through buds is it really not many people have that opportunity to push themselves that hard physically emotionally mentally for days on end you know when it's not a workout is this is your entire day yeah sun up to sundown so it's an existence that i really appreciate having the opportunity to look back and say that that i did that and I would say that experience has definitely benefited your endurance training approach. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and you've got to keep, you've got to continually like find new things to draw your, draw motivation from, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, every new chapter of life, every new race, it, it's different. It's going to be a different experience. Yeah. You almost got to reinvent yourself. Yeah. You've got to find new, new inspiration and, and that what, what motivated me during buds is not the same thing that motivated me now for when I trained and uh, prepared for Leadville. Yeah. So let's talk about your military career post buds and how you you kind of took a unique path, I guess you would say, back into the Navy special warfare community. I did. I was fortunate to have my first duty station in Kaneohe Marine Corps Base in Hawaii as air crew on an aircraft called the P-3 Orion, which is a maritime maritime patrol aircraft. And this is why you joined the Navy, right? He's never a bad duty station. So living in Hawaii was a great experience for me as somebody who loved the ocean, you know, loved surfing. It was a unique experience. It's just a great opportunity to heal after what had happened to me at Bud's. And so... Slowly, I started regaining my confidence in myself, kind of coming back to coming back to center and rebalancing. But conventional Navy w- was not for me. I, I was lucky to have other friends in that squadron who also did not make it through buds to kind of help cope and talk about what happened and and knew knew somebody had go- is going through kind of the same experiences that you are but Mm -hmm. i always wanted to come back to the naval special warfare community i I found eod guys on the same base i sought them out i was trying to figure out how to get a tryout with them or come back to buds but unfortunately all those billets were full they weren't taking retreads and then one day they were holding a brief and they were it was for special operations and they were looking for aviation rates. They needed these aviation rates to operate unmanned aircraft systems in support of Navy Special Warfare SEAL mission sets. So went to that brief, couldn't stop thinking about it. I was a little junior at the time, but the second time they came through, I had a little bit more experience. I put my package in, I screened, and I got picked up in PCS to San Diego in 2015. And I spent the next five and a half years at Special Reconnaissance Team 1 as an unmanned aircraft systems operator, flying drones organically. I deployed to Iraq in 2016, 2017, and that was, a, that was an awesome deployment. It was, a, it was very kinetic, um, and it was at the point where we started moving outside of the wire and uh, being able to use um, unmanned aircraft systems and, and drones as an asset to be able to provide ISR intelligence to uh, to SEAL teams um, moving outside of the wire for different missions. Well, Jason, I want to talk a lot about uh, you had shared your involvement in uh major Tori gilbert's story uh if you don't mind let's spend the next couple minutes i think it's an absolutely wild story how it all came to be and such an impactful involvement and in a huge part of our country's history and not only just the gilbert family 
you know, at the time, this was this was just a, a mission. This was just part of being on deployment. But it wasn't as it wasn't till later that emotions resurfaced for me, and that this story was so impactful to me. But during my deployment to Iraq with SEAL Team Five in 2016, 2017, I was stationed at Al Qaidam Air Base, and we had received intelligence that uh, a local tribal leader was saying that he had the body of an American Air Force pilot. But to tell the story, I need to go back to 2006. Major Troy Gilbert was protecting a Delta Force squadron whose, whose Little Bird helicopter had been shot down. And there were enemy insurgents rolling up on their position in technical vehicles, they were taking heavy fire. And Major Troy Gilbert and his wingman were, were tasked with protecting, protecting these guys on the ground. But because there was a village nearby, they were, they were stuck to using guns and no, no rockets or missiles. So during the second, so he was doing these, these dives on these gun runs, protecting he sold these troops on the ground, and during his second gun run, ignoring all aircraft warning systems in an effort to, to save lives on, on the ground, um, just made too steep of a, a dive and could not pull his aircraft out in, in time and crashed into the ground. The intense fighting ensued for the few hours, and by the time uh, U.S. forces could get to the, the plane crash, the body had already been removed uh, along with all his personal effects. Um, for years later, they, they had attempts to recover the body. And finally, they, you know, after so many failed attempts, they, they, they buried him in Arlington with, without a body. Um, he widowed uh, a wife and, and three kids. Fast forward to 2016, and now we're getting this intelligence information. And, you know, as the weeks go by, the intelligence picture starts to become a little bit more stronger, corroborating what this local tribal leader is saying, that he has, he has his body. So it becomes national two priority on president president obama's list and an air force special negotiations team is is sent to our location to negotiate the the retrieval of uh, major gilbert's body we conduct a 22-hour mission and this special negotiation team goes goes out with the seal team to recover the body and they're able to get it back and bring it back on our our base they do a DNA test that night, and it verifies it is Major Troy Gilbert, and he's put on a C-17 and flown back to Dover, Delaware, and immediately re- repatriated with his his wife and kids, and finally laid to rest. So that was what I thought was the end of that story. However, years later, a few years later, um, it it was right after I got out. Um, so it was 2020 and I had just, I had just seen that, um, Ginger Gilbert, his wife had gotten remarried to an air force colonel. I don't remember where, where I, I saw that, but I just, I read, read about it in an article and this retired air force colonel was now, working for the for the uso and i just saw his name pop up on linkedin so i i reached out to him and i just told him who i was and a little bit about my story and and where i was and how i'm connected to to ginger and and troy and i requested you know if there's any way that i could just speak with her over the phone or connect with her and just tell her my my part of the story uh, that i'd be really appreciative of it and he replied and said that it it wouldn't be an issue and um 
that he'd set up a time for for us to talk. And it just so happened it was Thanksgiving morning when Ginger and I were able to told her my, my piece of the story. A lot of tears were flowing for both of us. Yeah, no kidding. You know, and, and I realized that at that time it was just, it, it, it hit me like, you think you get out and you transition and you, you've unpacked your bags, but there's still a lot more unpacking to do. And, and you touched on that is like your, you know, transition. It's, it's in, it's in phases. Like you're yeah. not done. Yeah. You're really done transitioning, you know, after spending so many years of your life doing something, it's, you're just going through phases of transitioning and, and getting at points further out. But, I realized that at that time that I had still so much unpacking to do just through reliving that experience. But I, then that, that December when I went back to, uh, spent Christmas with my family, we made it a point to go visit Major Gilbert's headstone, Arlington, and knelt down at his, his headstone and more tears came flowing out. But, um, it was, it was therapeutic for me. It was, it was something that didn't need, it wasn't just about that mission specifically, really where the tears were you know, also coming from was just reflecting back on our career and how it got to this point, uh, starting to be able to unpack and leave those things behind. Yeah. It's a lot of life lived, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, I think about it from a stress standpoint, right? Those stress related injuries are an accumulation of many, many, many events. Very rarely is it any one that causes this catastrophic failure or these adverse challenges, but it's the same way coming out of it. You talked about, you know, there's different phases. It's just that you're, you're titrating off of it, just like you did going into it. And I think oftentimes when you're, when you're transitioning out or any transitional change, trying to repair or restore any part of you, we have this unrealistic expectation that, you know, seven, eight, 10, 12, 15 years of a career, we're going to be better in a couple months or we're going to have it all figured out in a year or two or three or five or 10. I can't say that we ever get there, but as long as we have that constant pursuit of evolution and extend ourselves grace when, when we might have hangups or challenges, I think as long as we're moving the needle generally forward that we're doing all right, but it's definitely not this linear progression that we make it out to be. And it sure as heck don't come as fast as we want it to kind of touches a little bit on that that transition but the military is really good on how to prepare for war mission deployment they don't teach you how to come home and and transition out yeah yeah absolutely right so let's talk about your transition coming out kind of in the throes of COVID-19 let's talk about some of the challenges that that you had faced and how you found clarity and mission and purpose again yeah, you know, I got got out the end of December 2019, um, and COVID started. You know, the, the the world really stopped, and not being able to see friends, family, getting dumped by my girlfriend at the time. You know, just everything just started to pile up. I was fortunate to have gone through a transition program outside of the military called the Honor Foundation whose purpose is to help veterans from the special operations community by providing them with the, the community, the tools, the mentorship to be able to have a positive trajectory when they get out. So I was able to lean on uh, the friends and the mentors that I had made through this, this program to really help me get past this, this part of life. You know, it's, to a degree, the military really does institutionalize you, whether you want to believe it or not. And learning to find yourself and think for yourself after that is it's it's hard, you know. Like you're serving somebody else, you're serving that mission, and you're not serving yourself. So when you get out, you know somebody from who's a mentor or through the, a transition program like the Honor Foundation asks you, "What do you want to do?" And I'm not the only one. I saw this amongst you know, friends in my cohort that could not come up with a good answer. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? The answer to that question. Yeah. And it's funny when you're, again, we talk about when you're in the throes of it, it's, it's disorienting, not having an answer, not having a response. 
But now looking back down the road, it just seems how, how, like, how did you get to that point? It just seems so crazy that if somebody were to ask you, what do you want to do with your life? And you literally have no answer. Yeah. You know, you ask somebody that before they go in and they can tell you, oh, like, I'm <laughs> you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden you, you, you don't have a thought in your head and it's crazy because the things that, that go through your head, you're like, I, you know, the questions that I, that I hear, heard myself asking myself, but also they were the same questions that other vet, I heard other veterans voicing. Yeah. I, I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what skills I have. I don't know where I fit into civilian organizations. And yet, you know, now looking back and it's, it's because it's through programs like the Honor Foundation that have helped me realize, oh, yeah, nobody's going to hire you to jump out of airplanes or... T- <laughs> we don't need anything blown up right now. But, but all, those, all those other skills that you had, those critical thinking, problem-solving skills, organizational skills, team-building, battle-tested leadership experience, these are the skills that you bring to an organization that almost any organization will see that as an asset. Yeah, most definitely. So let's talk about some of your involvement in uh, the Swim for Soft and, and all that you do and giving back. Uh, the servant's heart is obviously deeply ingrained into you. And now we've kind of changed the focus of those sites post-career. Let's talk about some, some of what you do to give back. During the Honor Foundation, one of the last things that you do is you go on a trek. And our trek happened to be to go to San Francisco and visited all these different companies, big and small to find out what would it be like, you know, where, where does a veteran coming from this community, how do you fit into these organizations? How can you be of value is really the goal, right? So the last organization that we, company that we visited was Airbnb. And it just so happened we had a former Honor Foundation alumni there who was a former SEAL commander. And after giving his brief about Airbnb and his success there and how veterans can come into Airbnb and, and and be as successful as he was. He asked us if we had any questions. And for the first time in 13 companies that we visited, nobody had any questions. So he said to us, if you don't have any questions, I have an ask of you. And his ask was, when you find success, send the elevator back down. And these words really resonated with me. I wrote them down because I knew I wasn't at that point yet, but it spoke to the sense of service that that started your journey and the sense of service you still have, even though you're done with the military and that journey is concluded. And I knew that my service didn't have an expiration date and I needed to find something else post-military to give back. So I did the Hudson Seal swim uh, back in 2020 with some other friends. You know, you swim across the Hudson River, you start in New Jersey, you swim past the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, all the way down into lower Manhattan, and you run with flags to the Twin Towers Memorial. It's an incredible event, and I had an amazing time there. I thought it was just such a tribute to not just veterans, but the city of New York, and it kind of brought me full circle between yeah. with the reasons why I joined the military back in on 9-11. Definitely. And be able to come back there after my service and to, and to do that. So I was flying on the plane back to San Diego, and, you know, I just was reliving the, the experience in that weekend there, and I just said to myself, we need to bring this to San Diego. We need to bring this this swim you know, something like it to this community, to this city. And I wanted to benefit the Honor Foundation, which has helped me so much. So I came up with a route. I came up with, wrote my ideas on paper. I brought it to the Honor Foundation and they love the idea, but it's a small organization with some mighty individuals. And they said that I needed to, to champion it if it was going to happen. And so back in 2021 was our, our first event. We were literally 
building an airplane while we were flying it at the time. <laughs> I like that. Not knowing how this route was going to work out or how we were going to get engagement from all the different entities and local government that need to be involved to, to get us the permits to be able to do this. But that September of 2021, we had 46 swimmers make the crossing all the way from Glorieta Bay in Coronado, the USS uh, Midway Aircraft Carrier Museum. We just finished the, the third, third iteration of this event this past September, and it was our biggest fundraise yet. In, in three years, we've raised $825,000 for wow. foundation. That's awesome. You know, and it's, it's not just the fundraise, but seeing where the impact of those dollars go to. Mm -hmm. When I started, when I went through the Honor Foundation in, in 2019, there were three campuses, one in San Diego, one in Virginia Beach, and one had just opened up in, in Camp Lejeune. And fast forward to, to 2023, there's 10 campuses now. Awesome. Uh, all over the country, serving more than just the Navy Special Operations Community and Marines. We have campuses at Army bases now at Air Force bases, and they're just reaching so many other members and families of the special operations community who are transitioning out yeah. and impacting their trajectory in a positive way. So cool, man. So cool. And, and again, this is what I profess to so many is that the, when you talk about the who am I, service is nearly as close to the foundation as you could possibly get for most in the warrior community. Mm -hmm. They have to have an element of service. So true. Just because it goes from a formal setting in or a professional setting to a quote unquote civilian setting, the the root, the fundamental attribute of service does not change. Now, the uniform might, the mission might, the people might, but when we stay grounded in that servant's heart, there's literally not a place in the world that you cannot go and not answer the question, who am I? Oh, 100%. That, that servant leadership mindset. Yeah. You know, you don't, real, you don't realize it when you're in the military because you're doing it. It just becomes your everyday identity. Mm -hmm. But having, going through the Honor Foundation and having somebody talk about it and, and really define it now that you're out really made sense to me. And, it, yeah. and, the line, and it's something that I seek to do through the Swim for Soft and any kind of a veteran fundraising engagements that, that I'm a part of moving forward. Let's talk about the horse. I know we've covered a lot of your, your military background and now we've covered a little bit post-career, but how has the horse played an influence in you restoring identity and finding purpose? Almost about the same time that I the Leadville idea came in my head, I haven't had another veteran friend that told me he was volunteering at this equine therapy program here in, in San, just east of San Diego called Saddles and Service told me I should go check it out. And that, you know, they have this ranch with, with all these horses and they, they help veterans through the horse riding experience. And, you know, I had ridden horses very few and far between in my life. I didn't grow up with them. Yeah. Know much about them. I went to, I visited the orientation uh, right before the holidays uh, last December, and I immediately felt a calming presence just being at the Saddles and Service Ranch, um, and and what they stood for, and going to my first um, day working with the horse one on one with a Wrangler, it became my new therapy. Surfing used to give me that same feeling, but it rarely does anymore of just living in, in the present. Yeah. And, and the horse really forces you to do that. Um, you know, I've had moments where I've gone to the ranch where I've had other things on my mind and, and, and the horse feels it. The horse senses your anxiety and your stress about Whatever else is going on in your life, so it immediately forces you to, okay, I need to not think about those things. And yeah, I got to be right here, right now. Being on on with this horse right now, and that is that's just so impactful for 
for veterans and first responders who are going through, who are leaving behind such profound experiences. And, and it's, it, it's really helped me, helped me in my life just to go to saddles and service. I, I go there usually every Friday and to get life to just slow down for a minute, to feel like I'm I'm new, not moving on this speeding train. Yeah, yeah. And just to be there, to be present, and to care for another living creature. It's definitely been a profound experience in my life. And what I find mo- most interesting about the guests that come to Day 6 Ranch podcast is that, I mean, we have guests that were born into it. They have never lived a day on earth without a horse. And then we have the other end of the spectrum of people who have never grown up around horses and have no experience, but they get around that horse and it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your experiences are, what the horse has to offer us in educating and understanding and learning ourselves is exponential to many of the conventional routes that we're quote unquote supposed to use coming out of a warrior community. Absolutely. You know, and I think another thing that just being around the horse community is has taught me is or has helped me with is a sense of tribe that I've lost. Heck you yeah. know, I show up at saddles and service, and everybody's happy to see me. You know, yeah. there's no joke. They just they just want to help you out. They want to help you learn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's no, there's no rush. Even when I've gone there and I've said oh, I'm running late today, just like okay, hey, just, don't worry about it. Just take your time. Yeah. They just, they just want to help you heal. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I've noticed in having the fortune of existing in the warrior space and having an existence in the Western space is that the fundamental characteristics that make both communities is darn near the same. The hangup is, is we haven't had enough conversations between each other to realize that. And when you've lived in the warrior community for so long and operated in that space, not knowing that there's a whole entire other space out there that's darn near the same. It's a, it's a very easy transition for most to make. And you find a lot of those service attributes and pouring into a community and those that want to cover your back and cover your tail and they're self-reliant and they're hardworking and they, they love what they do and they pour into it. And it's just been an incredible journey to, to be able to exist in both and try to help both coexist. Yeah. I think, uh, Everything you said, there there really is something to it. There really is a very strong alignment between those two communities. So it, it makes perfect sense to to meld them together. Yeah. The way that the program like Saddles and Service is doing. There was a moment last spring in San Diego. We we don't get a lot of rain here in San Diego, but it was January and February. March were just like rainstorm after rainstorm. <laughs> so needless to say, there was a lot of no ride days at the yeah, ranch. Yeah. Um, I'd show up and we were just mucking stalls. We were cleaning, letting the horses out of their pens and stretch their legs. And I remember two instances where it was just me and two other veterans, you know, at the end of the, all, when all the work had been done, just standing up against the fence, staring at, staring out at the arena at the horses and just trading stories having having some laughs talking about people that we work with you know talking about things that happened to us and even those moments not even being on a horse just realizing that how therapeutic it is just to talk about it be with other people in that in that particular space in the atmosphere to talk about things and that happened to you is extremely therapeutic yeah it's good for the soul good for the soul yeah well jason as we wrap every episode we usually share a little bit of life advice uh, for those who have spent a little bit more time in the warrior community i like to frame the question more around resilience so in your experience both personally and professionally what are some of life lessons learned in the form of resilience that you would pass on to somebody maybe a few rows behind you gosh uh you know, I, I thought about this question because I knew you were going to ask me this uh, a lot. And, um, you know, I came down to wrote down a few things. But something for me, especially just going through the, the Leadville journey and this year in particular, it was doesn't matter how in shape you are physically and all the running, all the weightlifting that you do, you've got to be mentally fit as well. 
you've got to put in the time to be to focus on your mental health in your recovery as just as much as you do the rest of your body and getting to shape because you know it, it's the first it's what drives everything yeah and without it if you might as well be moving backwards so you know i think during our service as a, as a first responder as a veteran you know you tend to put that mental fitness in a compartment yeah you know focus on everything else you know it's just be like i remember coming back from deployment in iraq like you stop in germany and you spend a few days there to decompress before you you go back on a plane to to go home and everybody has to talk to the psych nobody wants to talk to the psych <laughs> Ain't that the truth? All the boxes that they know yeah. they need to on on the, these forms and answering the questions, yeah. the way that they think that they're gonna it's gonna get them the least time with the psych, yeah. just to yeah. get out of there. But looking back on it, you, you need it. Yeah. You needed moments to 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 unpack those things and address what happened to you and talk about those things that happened to you, um, and that's regardless of whether you served in the military or not, everybody's going through transition and profound experiences that, uh, that we all need to talk about. So I think another one that, that, that I've seen is, um, you need to kill your old identity to be able to advance to a new place of growth and new thresholds in, in your life and to grow as a human being. You can't let your previous identity define who you are moving forward. You've got to figure out a way to put that behind you and to be open to growth. Yeah. Those are great points that you make. You know, I, I recently was blessed with the opportunity to go down to Fort Worth PD and speak with some of their folks. And yeah. we addressed physical fitness from a mental health and resilience standpoint. And mm. oftentimes we don't we don't even view physical fitness as that, right? Usually there's a physical fitness standard that we have to adhere to based on our profession. Yeah. And that's kind of why we do it. Or I mean, we have an exceptional job that requires exceptional work out of our body. So we have to build and develop our body in that regard to be able to form that job. But very rarely do we have any conversations founded around why physical fitness can make you a more resilient human being. And when you start to, and this was my journey, once you start to change your perspective on that, it's incredible to see how fast that training and perspective takes place. But mm. you have to, you have to formulate your training around the resilience component from a mental health standpoint, in addition to being able to physically perform. And you, you talk about killing your old identity. I couldn't agree with you more in the sense that we're all trying to figure out who we are. It's a, it's a proverbial question, right? Nobody's immune to not having an answer for that. We mm. just are a little misguided in where we place it or we place a little too much into it. And we don't really ask those questions of who we are. Oftentimes, who we are is answered with what we do. And there's definitely a conflict there. And unpacking that and getting more towards our pure intention and why we're here on earth comes peace. There, there's definitely a struggle, but comes peace and comes confidence and comes resolve and it's just incredible to walk that journey and i think that's why you and i got along so well from conversation number one is it just yeah we've had pretty darn cool careers and yeah we've fallen on our face and yeah things have been ugly and hard and difficult sometimes but if we can take some of those lessons and pass them along to the next individual whether they're in the warrior community or not i i feel so compelled to do and like you talked about the advice that you'd gotten while you were visiting airbnb you know we have to send that elevator back down. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that we're absolutely compelled and obligated to do so. Yeah, that um, that kind of leads into one of the other things that I wrote down is, you know, if you want to help yourself, one of the best ways to do it is to be a servant leader yeah. and to find ways to service others. Not, not only is it incredibly rewarding for yourself, but you create this community and you create a tribe that will continue to light other fires. And that's just so impactful. And when, when you're able to do that, you really help yourself too. Heck yeah. Very rewarding, very rewarding journey, very rewarding experience. And uh, the, the last thing that I, that I had was um, 
I'm going to borrow this from uh, Admiral McRaven, who just wrote uh, whose book, uh, Lessons from the Bullfrog. But this, this one stood out for me is the day you've got nothing left to prove, you might as well be done. So you've got to continue to, to be relevant and find things to be fired up about in life. And keep searching and finding those things because it's easy for any of us to get in a rut like I did last year and be jaded about life. But finding those things to be fired up fuels that passion for living. You know, for me, it was ultra running, riding horses recently, mentoring and serving other veterans. But it's going to be different for all of us out there. But you need to seek it out. You need to keep finding it. Great way to wrap. Great way to wrap, Jason. Well, it was an absolute honor to sit down and chat with you for a little bit. And there's there's anything that we can do here at Day Six Ranch or through Day Six Ranch podcast to support all that you have going on with the Swim for Soft and the other events that you participate in, man. You know how to get hold of us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for your time and Day Six Ranch podcast. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to listen to more episodes and uh, for us to continue this conversation. All right, brother. We'll talk to you on the next one. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us on Day 6 Ranch Podcast. If you are looking to build a legacy-worthy lifestyle, we encourage you to visit day6ranch.com and stay connected through our monthly newsletter, explore our free content, and dive into our leadership and human optimization educational opportunities. As always, subscribing to our show is a huge help. But more importantly, if a message you heard today moved you, then please share the show with just one person who may benefit from the same message. We must continue to take care of our own, so stay in the fight, And we'll see you on the next one.